You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. For miles and miles, you can see little firecrackers like uh, going off. And it was very distinct, very obvious that those were Sam's being shot up. And as you got closer, they just started going up around you. And at first, you were very afraid because you wanted to move away from everyone you saw. But after you calmed down and realized, uh, sure, there's a Sam, and it's going up, but it's going off there, and you kind of ignored it. It took a little while to get used to that. We heard the bombs start hitting, and we thought, this is the first time they bombed north in a long time. The fighters hadn't even been up for some reason. Well, then when we heard the bombs start landing a half a mile short, of the prison and walk right by us in a string, we knew it had to be bombers because fighters don't care that many f- bombs. And the jubilation was unbelievable. Guys jumping up and down and clapping each other on the back, people hollering and shouting, and the Vietnamese guard uh, excited and poking his gun in the door and telling us to, uh, to get under our bunks. One of them looked in the door and said, you know, they are trying to kill you. I said, they're not trying to kill me. They're trying to kill you. targets selected in the 1972 uh, Christmas bombing uh, consisted entirely of military targets. Uh, For instance, uh, they would uh, uh, consist of uh, warehouses, uh, command and control stations, uh, missile sites, ammunition storage, communication sites, uh, things of that kind. Uh, The uh, Accusation that we were conducting uh, carpet bombing, uh, of course, is uh, uh, absolutely uh, false. Uh, For that matter, had we uh, conducted uh, carpet bombing, uh, I think that uh, there wouldn't be a Hanoi today. Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. I'm Randall Wallace, and this is the horrors of war. Uh, You know, uh, war is a terrible thing, and... With the peace talks uh, kind of coming undone, Richard Nixon takes the war to the enemy and starts bombing. And you could hear at the beginning of this show the difference in the treatment and, and the fact that the POWs knew, hey, they're coming to town because they were they were in Hanoi, and we started bombing uh, on a in a big on a big scale there to the point that they could hear it. Um, and and you know. This is what's going to bring them back to the table in January of of uh, 1974 uh, and or 73 to to move us to the end of this war, uh, but it comes at a high price, and you're going to hear, uh, you know, the these folks that that, that lived through the bombing in one of the shelters and an entire family wiped down, and I think people need to see uh, 
there's nothing glamorous or glorious about war. And uh, it should be a last alternative, and too often it's a, it's people are in a hurry to jump into them, and I, I, I think you really have to think that position through, as you'll see or you'll hear listening over the next few minutes. Trong đêm tối, tiếng người kêu cứu, tiếng khóc thảm thiết, thảm thiết. Chúng tôi đã Cries phải dùng and moans filled the dark night. We had to use knives, hammers, and shovels to break through the concrete walls in order to get to the victims trapped inside. As a surgeon, I operate on people to save their lives. Now I was using my surgical knife not to save people, but to cut apart the corpses in the bomb shelter so we could rescue those still alive. The shelter collapsed on me. The next morning I was taken to the hospital. Only later on did I learn that five members of my family had been killed. My mother, my sister and her husband, my older brother, my younger brother. The most heartbreaking sight was in San Juan Alley. A whole family of seven, husband and wife and five children had been killed. The oldest child was 20, the youngest two. The whole family was wiped out. It was extremely painful to see. The site of their house is still an empty lot. What an outrage. A family of seven completely wiped out. That damn good young candidate that was running against him back in 1972 in Delaware is now your president of the United States, Joe Biden. And I was looking at a really interesting article from Slate. When Joe Biden was the candidate of the young, back in 1972, the kids couldn't get enough of him by Jim Newell from June 11th of 2019. A little more than a week before the election day, 1972, readers of Wilmington, Delaware's major newspapers were greeted with a series of advertisements from 29-year-old Newcastle County Councilman Joseph R. Biden, Jr. Biden was running for U.S. Senate against an older, much more established candidate, the two-term Republican incumbent, Senator Cale Boggs. The ads were meant to highlight how Boggs and his generation were out of touch. Cale Boggs' generation dreamed of conquering polio, read one ad. Joe Biden's generation dreams of conquering heroin. To Cale Boggs, an unfair tax was the 1948 poll tax. Win another. To Joe Biden, an unfair tax is the 1972 income tax. Joe Biden, the bottom of each spot read, he understands what's happening today. And he pulls off arguably one of the biggest upsets in U.S. Senate history. At 29, he's actually too young to serve in the United States Senate. Uh, And so he's got to wait for a birthday to take office. He has the world in his hands. 
Uh, you know, I, I couldn't even imagine, you know, here you are, you're 29 years old, 30 years old, you're going to the United States Senate, you got a beautiful wife, uh, about an 18-month-old baby daughter, and two sons who are three, four years old. It's just, you know, one of those fairy tale kind of stories of a young man in a hurry who has made it. And as we'll see, tragically, it all crashes down on him. And uh, uh, this is that story that you're going to hear about the car accident that killed Joe Biden's wife and daughter. And it's President Nixon who will call and reach out to him to try to to help him, you know, soothe him and just for just a moment on the uh, at the time of this accident. And right behind it, we lose another political giant, uh, truly one of the great presidents uh, in American history, Harry S. Truman. And you'll get to hear some of the coverage of uh, President Truman's passing, which happened the day after Christmas of 1972. The youngest new face in the U.S. Senate next year will be that of Democrat Joseph Biden of Delaware. So young, in fact, that at the time of his election on November 7th, Biden was not yet old enough to serve. Yesterday, that problem was resolved. ABC Capitol Hill correspondent Bob Clark has the story. They gave a surprise party yesterday for Joe Biden, who will make history because of his age when he takes his seat in the new Senate. looking father of three young children was celebrating his 30th birthday. That makes him just old enough to be a United States Senator, 30 being the minimum age prescribed by the Constitution. Biden, a liberal Democrat, pulled one of the big upsets of the election by unseating a 63-year-old Republican, Caleb Boggs. In Washington today, he was having trouble convincing some people he really is a senator and having some doubts about the Senate seniority system while hoping older members won't hold his age against him. I expect these fellows are going to uh, uh, eventually judge me on my merit, not on my age, and uh, I have to establish that merit, assuming there is any there. I don't think it's going to be much of a problem. I, beyond... Uh, I mean, other senators' staffs think I'm applying for a job or as a page or something. Would you like to see some changes in the seniority system? <laughs> well, I would like to see some changes in the seniority system, but, uh, and it's not going to make any difference my saying this, but it's not because I'm 30 and coming in. I, I think that the seniority system uh, has many more drawbacks and it has merits. Where I'm not going to lead any move to change that in my formative years in the Senate, but were there to be such a vote to come up, I clearly would vote to eliminate the seniority system. Uh, the indications are that you may be 100th in seniority, the last man of the totem pole <laughs> in the Senate. Does that bother you? Well, no, it doesn't. As a matter of fact, I think it's sort of amusing uh, um, that uh, I probably have the least seniority of anyone ever to enter this august body. Biden worked in a borrowed office today, holding interviews, sorting through 1,400 job applications from people who want to work on his Senate staff. If he stays in the Senate till the Hi. end of this century, he'll be 57, the average age of senators now. By the way, Bob uh, Clark, ABC here, News, Washington.
Just a week before Christmas 1972, the wife of newly elected Senator Joe Biden and their baby daughter were killed, and their two sons badly injured when the Biden family car was broadsided by a truck at this intersection in Delaware. The truck driver, Curtis Dunn, was never charged in the crash, but his daughter, Pam Hamill, says he too suffered. He grieved over that. He was haunted and tormented by that for years. Dunn died in 1999. But since then, his family has endured widespread rumors and reports that he had been drinking just before the collision. At least twice, Biden himself has made public references to alcohol being involved in the crash. In 2007, Biden said the truck driver, quote, allegedly drank his lunch. And multiple news outlets, including CBS News, have reported that Dunn was drunk. Hamill disputes that, saying her dad had not been drinking. The truth is, it was a tragic accident. No alcohol was involved. The police reports have been lost, but Delaware Judge Jerome Herlihy, who investigated the crash, supports Hamill. He tells CBS News there was no indication that the truck driver had been drinking. Last fall, a spokesman for Biden said Biden fully accepts the Dunn family's word that these rumors were false. Now, Pam Hamill simply wants the record to be clear. He was a good, hardworking man and a wonderful father. And her father's reputation restored. Bob or CBS News, Newark, Delaware. Joe Biden has had a surprisingly tragic life. Just a few years ago, he lost his oldest son, Beau, to cancer, while his younger son, Hunter, has spent years struggling to free himself from dependence on drugs and alcohol. Perhaps the greatest sorrow in Joe Biden's life, however, occurred early on in his senatorial career when he received the kind of phone call every spouse and parent dreads. But the call said, my wife is dead. My daughter was dead, and I wasn't sure how my sons were going to make it. As Biden told Marie Claire on December 18, 1972, My wife and three children were Christmas shopping. A tractor-trailer broadsided them and killed my wife and killed my daughter. Suddenly, the young senator-elect from Delaware found himself a single dad with his two surviving kids in the hospital with serious injuries, and he was actually sworn into office at their bedsides. Hunter, in presenting Bo's eulogy in 2015, noted that being in the hospital was his very first memory. He said, I was almost three years old. I remember my brother, who was one year and one day older than me, holding my hand, staring into my eyes, saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, over and over and over again. Once the kids were out of the hospital, Biden resumed his political career but rode the train back to their home in Wilmington every night from his D.C. office, a habit that earned him the nickname Amtrak Joe. The first Mrs. Biden, Nellia Hunter, was born in 1942 in Scaniatlas, New York. 
She later studied at Syracuse University and during her junior year took a spring break trip to Nassau, where she met a University of Delaware junior named Joe. Evidently, they hit it off, since a few years later, Joe decided to attend law school at Syracuse, and the two married in August of 1966. After the couple wed, they moved to Wilmington, Delaware, where new lawyer Joe got his first start in politics by serving on the Newcastle County Council. Soon Joe would take things a step further, challenging Delaware's Republican incumbent Senator J. Caleb Boggs for his seat. Nellia was said to be the brains behind the campaign, somehow managing to engineer his come-from-behind win while simultaneously mothering three small children. In her autobiography, Where the Light Enters, Joe's current wife, Jill Biden, describes how she had the pleasure of meeting Nellia just a month before her untimely demise. She wrote about her easy, natural beauty and her warm smile. She also wrote about how unfair the situation was. To take a mother from her children, to take a daughter from her father, Joe Biden had had everything, and in a horrible second, it was gone. According to The Independent, shortly after Biden's victory in the November 1972 election, Nellia asked her husband, What's going to happen, Joey? Things are too good. Sadly, she was right. Just one week before Christmas came the car crash, as a tractor-trailer carrying corn slammed into the side of the Biden family's Chevy station wagon. In that terrible moment, as Biden later described, my whole world was altered forever. He soldiered through, however, not only holding up through a memorial service that drew a crowd of 1,200, but staying strong to help his injured sons. As Biden wrote in 2017's Promise Me Dad, the pain had seemed unbearable in the beginning and it took me a long time to heal, but I did survive the punishing ordeal. I made it through with a lot of support and reconstructed my life and my family. Biden has mentioned this profoundly sad event in many speeches he's given over the years, including a 2012 address to US military service members and how hard it can be to move on after such an unspeakable tragedy. He said, Keep thinking what your husband or wife would want you to do. Keep thinking what it is and keep remembering those kids of yours or him or her the rest of their life. Blood of my blood, bone of my bone. Because folks, it can and will get better. Could you get the new senator from Delaware, Mr. Biden, on the phone, please? Thank you. Hello, Mr. President. How are you? Senator, I know this is a, a very tragic day for you, but I wanted you to know that all of us here at the White House were thinking about you and praying for you and uh, and also for your uh, your uh, two children. And uh, that family, uh, we know that uh, I understand you were on the hill at the time and uh, your wife was just driving by herself. So, uh, so the, uh, but uh, in any event, uh, I mean, looking at it in a, as you must in terms of the future, because you you have the great fortune of being young. I remember I was two years older than you, and I went to the house. <laughs> but the main point is you can remember that she was there when you won a great victory, and uh, you enjoyed it together, and now I'm sure that uh, she'll be watching you from now on. Good luck to you. Thank you very much, Mr. President. Okay. Thank you call. I appreciate it. CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite and Robert Barr in Kansas City, Missouri, Ike Pappas in Independence, Missouri, Charles Kuralt in Independence, Neil Strausser in Washington, and George Natanson in Managua, Nicaragua.
Good evening. Former President Harry S. Truman died this morning at age 88. The long vigil at Kansas City's research hospital came to an end when hospital spokesman Wayne Connery made the announcement. The Honorable Harry S. Truman, 33rd President of the United States, died at 7.50 a.m. at Research Hospital and Medical Center. They waited patiently for the presidential proclamation of mourning before lowering the flag outside Kansas City's research hospital. It was done calmly and with dignity, very much in keeping with the former president's last hours here. He was in a deep coma then, his body swiftly giving way. For three weeks, he had fought off the effects of advancing age and a weakened heart, even when the drugs were no longer working. He went quickly this morning, a hospital source said, but peacefully. Harry Truman's neighbors on North Delaware Street Independence did not wait for a presidential proclamation to honor their neighbor. When word of the end came, they quietly lowered their flags to half-staff and then took a moment to remember what they liked best about him. I think his friendliness. I mean, how often do you have this close a connection to somebody of this integrity and have him always willing to speak to you and to stop and talk to you and uh, to make you feel like as if he knew you? This is the thing that sticks in my mind more than anything else. What do you think is the reaction of your neighbors in Independence? Well, I can't speak for my neighbors, but you can see the flags that are flying on the homes of the neighbors are half-masked. I think this says it. They're really quite sorry, I'm sure. I know we all feel like we've lost a good friend. The flag was also lowered this morning at number 219 North Delaware, the Truman residence. A lone Secret Service man stood guard on the lawn. As within, Mr. Truman's wife, Bess, the childhood sweetheart he married 53 years ago, mourned. She had suffered with him through the long hours and days of the hospital vigil, and she was tired. Late this afternoon, Mrs. Truman, accompanied by her daughter, Mrs. Margaret Truman Daniel, and her husband, left to go to Carson's funeral home, where the former president's body was now prepared for repose. There was little else stirring today from the house on North Delaware. Mike Pappas, CBS News, Independence. The funeral observances will last for two days, but without the pomp and fanfare usually accorded to great statesmen, this was the request of Mr. Truman himself. Tomorrow, the body will go by motorcade from the Carson Funeral Home in Independence to the Truman Library and will lie in state there for 24 hours. Thursday, after funeral services in the library's auditorium, Mr. Truman will be buried on the library grounds in a quiet and private ceremony. President Nixon does not plan to attend the funeral, but he and Mrs. Nixon will fly to Independence tomorrow for a wreath-laying ceremony at the library. This is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, 
which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. Nixon was of the view that something shocking had to be done. That was not my view at the time, but I didn't disagree with it. And I went along with it. And I think Nixon turned out to be right. In December, Nixon ordered the most intensive bombing of the entire war. It became known as the Christmas bombing. raids went on for 12 days. Ignoring the pleas of his closest aides, Nixon gave no public explanation for his action. He thought it was diplomatically vital that uh, he make this look as cold an operation as possible, and so he would not explain it. He held himself apart up on the mountaintop in Camp David, knowing that his silence would make it more effective. The New York Times denounced what it called Nixon's Stone Age barbarism. The massive unexplained destruction alarmed even his loyal supporters. You were quoted recently as saying that the president had taken leave of his senses. I feel that uh, uh, he's done things here that a reasonable man would not have done. And uh, I can't find an explanation for it. The bombing stopped. The controversy subsided, and shortly thereafter, all sides returned to Paris. Yeah. Dr. Kissinger, sir. Hello, Mr. President. Just check to see how the weather is out there. Oh, the weather is perfect. Good. Good. You hope you've got a little sun. I sat near the pool all day. And... Hope you aren't worrying about anything. No, I, I'm, I've got good communications here, so I get some messages. Well, that's bad. They have to have communications. <laughs> but um, I... Uh... It's, it really is. It's very relaxing. And uh, so I'm, I am having a good time, a good rest. We had another message from the North Vietnamese today. Yeah. Uh, you may have heard from him. No, no, I haven't talked to him. Well, the message... Well, I've been at the Truman uh, funeral today. Oh, I see. Well, they canceled the uh, technical meeting today. Right, right. But they reaffirmed their offer of meeting on the 8th. Right. And... The, this is all private, nothing public. The message. Everything is private on this, nothing public. Because if they go public, we go public. Nothing public. Okay. And they also reaffirmed that the technical meetings will resume as soon as we uh, stop bombing. Now, I sent them a message yesterday after our talk in which I just said if they confirm all these things with specific dates, then we'll stop the bombing within uh, 36 hours. Right. And that may give us an announcement as early as Saturday. Yeah, that's good. Because I told you if we could, it's 
is not imperative, but if we could get it before the first, it would be good. Well, I think it's certain by Sunday, and there's a 50-50 chance of Saturday. Well, we hope so. And if it doesn't... Saturday has the advantage of making the news magazine. Oh, the hell with them. But any event, if it doesn't come for them, that's fine. The main thing is if we could get it by Sunday even, so that it hits New Year's Day and all that sort of thing, that would be good. Because if we... I'd rather not have the New Year's bombing halt just as just a bombing halt. Do you see my point? Well, there's almost no chance that we won't hear by Saturday. I mean, all they'd have to do is... If we get the message by Saturday morning, then right. we'll, we'll announce it on Sunday morning. Right. And, but I think we'll get the message on Friday, in which case, if you wanted to, we could announce it on, on Saturday. That's all right, too. And make the Sunday. Because we, uh, we gave them a hell of a good bang, you know, and I'm glad we only lost two, two B-52s. B- 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 that wasn't too bad. That's right. Yeah. Yesterday. Yeah. Right. I think we lost another two today. Well, I know. That's what we expect, don't we? That's right. We're hitting about the average. That's about right. That's right. Two out of 60 today. Two out of 60, yes. Well, that's... Uh, that's less than uh, 5%. Right. But, but, but a, little more than, a little more than 3%. That's about... But, but we're... But, but on the other hand, we're punishing the hell out of them, aren't we? Oh, there's no question about it. Absolutely no question. We had, we saw the French foreign minister today showed us a report from his consul general in Hanoi saying, I've just lived through the most terrifying hour of my life. An unbelievable raid has just taken place. And, uh, oh no, there's no question about that. Do you think so? I, I, uh, 
Sam Stewart and you will go down in history as having... Uh, forget the history, but I mean, you haven't run into a hell of a lot of flack out there, have you? People are worrying about you bombing you? Well, I don't see many people out there. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm going to stay out of the social columns on this trip. Well, the point is, don't let them needle you, that's the point. Oh, I don't... Right now, the thing is that we're doing the right thing. We just stick right to our guns, and if we get this, if we can get a response from them, why, that's good. If we don't, well, then we go option two. We're all ready. Exactly. Actually, it doesn't really make any difference because the news magazines close on Friday. I just forgot about that. Well, we don't give a goddamn about them anyway. Exactly. Because if, if something happens before they close, then they're terribly embarrassed. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Right. Well, enjoy yourself. Bye. Thank you. Bye. we will be keeping 
keeping our word. That's all I want to be sure of, up, up to a point. No, no, we'll keep our word by two, we'll be within two hours. We're stopping within 34 hours. Mm-hmm. But, we, you know, we got an answer within 12 hours. Which shows how, ang- how anxious mm-hmm. they are. You, uh, what significance do you attach to all this? Oh, I think they are practically on their knees. Also in their answer, they said we will fix the schedule for the final signing at that next meeting. They always want to talk about schedules, don't they? Yeah, but this one, I mean, considering what we've done to them, yep. that they are willing... I must say, this, uh, this should have some effect on our brethren in the press, shouldn't it? As you know, if they had strung us up, if they could have taken it another week or two, we would have had unshirted hell in this country.
it's going to be tough pity. I think now we're going to turn. We've already got a list of economic pressures. Right. And we're going to start implementing those next week. Saigon. Well, yes. Right. On Saigon, though, uh, uh, as I see, and I'm talking to Kennedy a little, which you'll, you'll fill you in this morning about, you know, some of the concerns as to the options that we have to be considering here. with our plan, just talking to the North. My view is we talk and we settle, right, with them. Now then, then do we, uh, uh, at what point do we inform Saigon that we are going to proceed in that way or that we have proceeded in that way? I think this thing is going to happen just before your inauguration. I, I would still send Agnew and Hagar there to keep them a safe-saving way off. <laughs> suppose he doesn't. That's, I suppose, our problem. Proceed and sign the documents. Proceed and sign the documents, but they won't sign if uh, Hanoi doesn't, uh, if Saigon doesn't sign. I'm just trying to raise the question, you understand? Well, I think it will wind up with Saigon at least implementing it, whether they sign it or not. Mm-hmm. Well, you've got to have that understood with, with Hanoi, then, that they aren't going to say, well, yeah, I... You wouldn't want to have that happening just before the inauguration has well, That's what I think should happen, Mr. President. If we send Agnew to Saigon before the inauguration, that would get him back by the 16th. Then that I go on the final leg of this exercise right after the inauguration. Right. stretches it out a little more, and then you could go on around the 29th or 30th. In other words, we would have no announcement before the inauguration. No announcement, but obvious activity. Well, I don't think then I'd send, send, uh, I don't think I would send out with the possibility of getting a rebuff before the inauguration. I'm inclined to think I would uh, have the activity if, uh, you see the problem we have here, which we've got to think about, the problem we have here is that the inauguration uh, as best we can, and I think you'd better, you may have to string your talk out to uh, shove him past that point. I mean, if we we aren't going to get it, if we can't get it settled before the inauguration, I don't want him going out there and getting rebuffed before the inauguration. The risk is worth it.
I'm going to have to play it very close to the vest. But if we have an agreement, uh, well, uh, it's dangerous to tie ourselves to a schedule that culminates just before the inauguration. Because if anything goes wrong with that, we'll be in the same position as we were at the end of October. Well, then let's push Agnew past the inauguration, too, then. All right, we can do that. That's the best thing. Just, uh, uh, you mean you'd take then you take a whack on the eighth, then another on the fifteenth, like that. Well, I think we should conclude it by the eleventh this time. I I just think it's too dangerous. All right, but you conclude it. It's going to start getting out, and then Saigon, I suppose. You see, my problem. I I think once it's concluded, well, we can talk about this later. But you can be thinking about this so that we get a plan. This thing is concluded. We agree. The damn thing is going to get out, and then Saigon might blow. On the other hand, I don't want Agnew going out there and and uh, basically provoking it. Uh, if, if so, I realize there's a risk if he doesn't go, but I think there's even a, at least do not have the confrontation before the inauguration. If Agnew goes before the inauguration, Henry, you could well have a confrontation and have the whole damn thing seem to be shattered. So what we have to do is to work out some sort of a plan whereby you do your deal, and we sort of... Well, we could put it into cold storage for 10 days and just start it on inaugural day. I'm afraid that's what we better do. Although it's a high risk. If one leaves these things lying around, but of course we may not finish it by the 11th. Yeah, I understand that. Well, the main thing, you'll have some activity and we won't be bombing. We can ask Bunker's judgment. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Uh, uh, Kennedy seemed to have some views that you would, uh, was a little more, uh, might begin to be reasonable, more, more reasonable, but I think that's sort of silly. Huh? No, I think that's right. Yeah, we felt that before, haven't we? Yeah, but we haven't really the last time when Haig was out there. We didn't have a specific proposition to put before him. <laughs> well, this is going to be goddamn specific, and he isn't going to like it. But what are his options? Yeah. I'd rather have him blow Henry right after the inauguration than before. You see my problem. Of course. The problem being that I don't want to have the... And, and we'll just tell the North, look, with the inauguration coming on, we we got it. we can't do it then, but the, you're going to send Agdu immediately after the inauguration. That's right. And, and that's, I think you could... I think they'd well understand that, if they're not being bombed. My point? That's right. The danger with these bastards always is when you let... They might, let off, they might get off the hook. When you let up the pressure on them, they are again uh, mm. feel confident. On the other hand, we ought to get. Uh, but it can easily be done that way, and then we could perhaps compress it uh, by having you go to Saigon and have me go to the other places simultaneously.
progress. So. Okay. Well, fine, Henry. Yeah, maybe enjoy the weekend. <laughs> Good problem to have. For a change. Okay, thank you. Right, thank you. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.